and welcome back to episode four of Nothing Is Real podcast. In this episode, we're going to be talking about science, which is one of my favorite things to talk about. It's very near and dear to me, and it was one of my favorite subjects when I was in school. And even though I didn't really go on to pursue it after graduating from high school, um, I still really do enjoy learning and talking about it. So stick around to learn more about constructivism and science. So as I mentioned before, constructivism really does dip into so many different industries. So I have a list here, art, architecture, math, philosophy, psychology, and science. And I definitely want to talk about science for a little bit. So interestingly, if you think about the progression that science has gone through throughout our understanding, we can kind of track how our understanding of epistemology, which is how is knowledge acquired, um, has evolved through the different kind of scientific theories that have been groundbreaking throughout Western history. And I'm talking about Western history because of course that's what we were all taught in school and that's what we're mostly familiar with. And yes, I can appreciate the irony that I'm saying we and I'm specifically talking about America and Western blah, blah, blah. I know that not everyone has this perspective, but it's the perspective I hold. And so it's the only perspective I can really speak from confidently. So I hope that um, those from different perspectives can also appreciate kind of how where I'm coming from and maybe the perspective of kind of the dominant ideology, which is um, in future episodes, I really hope to step out of that and understand different perspectives because after all, this is a constructivist podcast. So in the Western kind of very, very broad strokes understanding of um, groundbreaking scientific theories, it kind of goes that you had the, and this is, by the way, mostly referring to theories of physics, but this story starts out with our friend Sir Isaac Newton who was sitting in an apple orchard or something and the apple fell on his head and he discovered the law of gravity um, as we probably learned it in school. Um, so Newton had a perspective of coming up with the laws of the universe and he really articulated that there were these invisible laws that were functioning all around us so one of which being the law of gravity that had numbers associated with it. And, you know, he, there was this overall feeling of, whoa, there's something out there that's invisible that if we just look hard enough and we just run a bunch of experiments, we'll understand what's at the core of all of this. Like what is kind of working behind the scenes to make our universe go. And then... Years later, of course, we have our friend Einstein, who said that, okay, well, there are these laws that are out there. Um, but when we really look deeply at the things that make up our universe and how they function and what laws are working on them, there's actually something out there, yes, but it changes a little bit whenever I try to grasp it. So it's kind of the feeling of, you know, I'm in my backyard and I'm looking at a trail of ants and I'm 
trying to understand what pattern they're going in and why they're going in one direction and not the other direction. And so you find this invisible force that makes them go, but then you realize, huh, maybe they're going in this direction over here because they're trying to avoid my giant foot that's about to crush them. Or just the act of me observing them is making them behave differently. Um, So he made a step back from that feeling of, oh, there are these things out there that work a certain way to the theory of relativity, which is they work a certain way, but we can never truly understand what that certain way is because we are the ones affecting it by trying to measure it. And then, of course, after that is um, the groundbreaking realization that we are still currently, like our worlds are just forever shaken by this realization. But we have our friend Planck and his associates who um, defined quantum theory for the first time. And quantum theory is still is kind of incredible to imagine. It's like, oh my God. Like, yes, there are things out there that we can observe. That is technically the case. And when we try to pin those things down and understand them, we realize, oh, there are these laws, there are these rules. And then we realize those laws and those rules change depending on who's um, observing and measuring. But then the further down that we try to measure things, like the more we try to pin down a solid piece of matter, um, we just find really, really sophisticated clouds all the way down. And the more we try to pin the thing down, the more we realize, oh, this is not a thing so much as it is the probability of a thing. And not only that, but that thing that you're measuring also fundamentally changes its state depending on if it's being observed. So it's almost like if you got all the way down to an atom or a molecule and you went further down into subatomic particles and then you realize that at the center of everything of all life is just the color yellow and you realize oh this thing is just yellow because it's seeing that I'm observing it and it turned yellow. Now this is obviously an extremely oversimplified uh, version of physics throughout history but Basically, this is all to say that what we thought of as science and um, the facts and the scientific method and proving that something is real, um, the more that we try to do so, the more that we adhere really strictly to um, the objective laws of the universe, the more we realize that those laws are appearing because we want them to appear, because we want to create meaning out of what we're observing And that meaning doesn't necessarily exist outside of us creating it. And if there are any physicists or scientists that are listening to this and heard my really haphazardly thrown together um, history, (laughs) um, you are welcome to join the podcast and uh, give a better outlining of what happened. But that's where we're going to start from. Uh, So... Now you can sort of see why this philosophy, why this ideology is kind of seen as really destabilizing. 
I want to talk about Piaget again. Jean Piaget is seen as one of the founding contributors to constructivist thought, even though his background is in evolutionary biology. So in the last episode, we talked a little bit about constructivism and education, and we talked about math. And I mentioned that it's weird to think of math as being associated with a theory as philosophical as constructivism. And the same goes for science. So when I was in middle school and high school, my two favorite subjects were science and languages. And I always told myself the reason for this was because these two subjects provide a clear answer to everything. Like in science, if you want to find something out, you do experiments and you get to the fact. And in language, if you want to know the word for something, usually it's in a dictionary and people can tell you how you can say it. But I never realized later on in life that I would be seeing quite the opposite in both languages and science. Language is constantly evolving and shifting to meet the needs of the people who use it. And science is doing the same thing. So let me tell you a story. So in school, you were likely told about Charles Darwin. Um, he's all about genetics, right? And he did his work on the Galapagos, I believe. And he, his aim was to prove that the way that species evolved were through two means, either natural selection, so fighting for survival and the survival of the fittest, or through sexual selection, so the organisms with the most appealing characteristics within that species get to carry on their offspring. Now, if you have a really good memory, you remember that there was another evolutionary biologist named Jean-Baptiste Lamarck, and he kind of took the opposite extreme of Darwin, which is that instead of genetics dictating how species evolve, it's behavior. And if you remember, if you were in um, a science class similar to mine, uh, you remember this Lamarck guy being brought up as sort of a joke. Like, while Darwin was on the Galapagos running tests and looking at the genetic biology of species, Lamarck instead believed that giraffes' necks were so long because they had to try to stretch up to reach the tallest tree and get food. Um, and so usually it was brought up as like, that's ridiculous. I can't stretch my hand long enough to reach something. And that kind of behavior would certainly not be powerful enough to change my entire genetic makeup. But Jean Piaget, who himself was studying evolutionary biology at the time, was like, what if I told you both of you were right? Now, I talked in the last episode about a book called Constructivism, Theory, Perspectives, and Practice by Catherine Toomey Fosno. And in this book, we learn of this specific study that Piaget underwent that had to do with snails. So basically what he did was he took three different snails, and these snails were all raised in different types of habitats. So the first snail kind of came up in a very, very still water environment where maybe a pond or something, there wasn't much disturbance at all. The second snail was 
in an environment where there was a little bit more choppy waters, a little bit more of a back and forth with the waves. And then the third snail was maybe on the side of a rock somewhere in the ocean where there were huge waves constantly. And what he noticed about the difference between these three snails was that the two snails that were in water that were being constantly disturbed, whether it was just a little bit or a lot, both had these really small, like globe-like shells. But the snail that was in still water had a longer shell. Now, we're going to call them snails A, B, and C. Snail A was the still water snail, and it had the long shell, right? Snail B was the snail in the medium choppy water, and snail C was the snail in very, very choppy water. And snails B and C had the same kind of shell, essentially. So what Piaget did was he took the snail, snail B, out of the slightly choppy water and put it in an aquarium. And so this snail got to kind of chill out in the most calm, serene water, never to be disturbed by a wave again. And he found that that snail's offspring had the longer shell that we saw in snail A. But what happened? If it has to do with genetics, then shouldn't it also have this globe-like shell? So Piaget ran a few more tests, and then he found out that snails who are in highly disturbed water tend to make use of a specific muscle that causes the the shell itself to contract over time. And so the behavior of the snail actually did influence the shape of its shell that became a genetic marker. So this is actually an example of epigenetics in which a constant repeated behavior within a species can actually change over time the genetic makeup. And it just so happened that this change happened so quickly within the species of snail that you could you could basically see it within one generation. Now, the other really interesting thing that he found was that when he took snail C, the snail that was in the choppiest of waters, out and put the same snail into the aquarium, its offspring actually did not change the shape of its shell. So even though there is epigenetics going on, when there is such a disturbance or such a need for this kind of shell, the genetic difference between snails B and snail C are such that snail C will continue to have offspring with that globe-like shell, regardless of where it's moved. So Piaget used this information to kind of draw a middle ground between Darwin, who believed that genetics dictate everything, and Lamarck, who believes that behavior dictates everything. What he's trying to say is that behavior is an adaptive technique that organisms use to be able to survive in their environment. And yes, Darwin was correct that that makes it more likely for species to evolve and survive, but also the behavior itself can and does have an effect on the organism's genetic makeup. Our bodies are constantly shifting and responding to our environments via behavior. So if we hit a wall, we're not going to 
try to keep going through the wall if we realize it's not working. We respond to the world around us using behavior. And this behavior can go on to cause disturbances within our genetic makeup, which in turn influences the amount of genetic options that are left in our offspring. Now, because all of that is beyond my own personal level of scientific knowledge, I'm going to pull a quote directly from page 13 of Constructivism. Piaget took the position that the activity of the organism drives the evolution of new structures because the development of new behavior more or less causes an imbalance in the genome, the regulatory system of the genetic structure. This perturbation causes a series of possibilities to result in the genome. And then, in line with Darwin's theory of evolution, the possibilities most suited to the environment survive. Ah, there you go. There's both of them. Piaget viewed behavior and the organism as a whole system, such that any change in a part of the system would result in other changes as behavior balanced the structure of the organism against the characteristics of the environment. So this idea of balance, this is a central element of constructivism. So the idea that the context is always influencing the individual is always influencing the context. And we'll come back to that later because it shows up in a lot of different fields. But for now, I hope you enjoyed that little anecdote. So I hope by now it's evident that science and constructivism can play nicely together. And in fact, true science fully respects the central thrust of constructivism. And in fact, if you've heard science being described as empirical, that's precisely what constructivism is trying to say, is that you experience the world using your senses. And through the experience of that world, you create and reconstruct and understanding of reality. So how did we come to associate science with objective facts? It's a really frustrating phenomenon, especially if you believe in the beauty of science. Now, I looked online and I found an association called NARST, or the National Association for Research in Science Teaching, which directly addresses this problem. So they say, the epistemology that is dominant in most educational settings today is similar to objectivism. That is to say, most researchers view knowledge as existing outside the bodies of cognizing beings, cognizing beings, as being separate from knowing and knowers. Knowledge is quote unquote out there, residing in books, independent of a thinking being. Science is then conceptualized as a search for truths, a means of discovering theories, laws, and principles associated with reality. Objectivity is a major component of the search for truths which underlie reality. Learners are encouraged to view objects, events, and phenomena with an objective mind, which is assumed to be separate from cognitive processes such as imagination, intuition, feelings, values, and beliefs. As a result, teachers implement a curriculum to ensure that students cover relevant science content and have opportunities to learn truths which are usually documented in bulging textbooks. 
The constructivist epistemology asserts that the only tools available to a knower are the senses. It is only through seeing, hearing, touching, smelling, and tasting that an individual interacts with the environment. With these messages from the senses, the individual builds a picture of the world. So here you can see exactly what I was discussing in the last episode about, you know, education and constructivism. There are more and more teachers that are pushing for this constructivist philosophy that students can own their knowledge. Students are, in fact, the authors of their own world, and they should be guided through that process of constructing a picture of reality rather than being told what reality is. So why does this matter so much? Because something as beautiful as science, something that's deeply human and multidimensional and that breathes becomes cold and unforgiving. And if you're saying, yeah, cold and unforgiving, like space, I love space. I'm sorry to break it to you, but science is anything but cold and unforgiving. And even particles millions of light years into space are reacting to every particle in your body. Anyway, so when this happens, science actually becomes fragile. When science is seen as the last word on knowledge, it becomes easier for people to disassociate from it. And when people come to believe that there's one reality out there, rather than a collection of socially negotiated understandings, it actually becomes antisocial. And that is what causes schisms in intellectual thought. So constructivism, just like Piaget's definition of evolution, lies somewhere in the middle ground. Our individual realities are super relevant. They're way more relevant than we often give credit to. But it can never be the whole story. And in the same way, shared realities are nothing without our individual interpretations. Right now, the scale lies a little bit more towards an objective reality, one shared reality. And what I'm doing with this podcast is I want to shift it a little bit more towards understanding how many different interpretations there are and giving a spotlight to the many different, beautiful, almost kaleidoscopic interpretations of reality that there are out there. Now, I'm going to read one more quote from this website. An important part of constructivist-oriented curricula should be the negotiation of meaning. Students need to be given opportunities to make sense of what is learned by negotiating meaning, comparing what is known to new experiences, and resolving discrepancies between what is known and what seems to be implied by new experience. The resolution of discrepancies enables an individual to reach an equilibrium in the sense that there should be no remaining curiosity regarding an experience in relation to what is known. Negotiation also can occur between individuals in a classroom. The process involves discussion and attentive listening, making sense of the point of views of theories of peers. When a person understands how a peer is making sense of a point of view, then it is possible to discuss similarities and differences between the theories of peers within a group. Justifying one position over another and selecting those theories that are viable can lead to consensuses that are understood by those within a peer group. So to illustrate this, remember those times in class when 
the teacher would call on you to answer a question and you'd give your answer that you thought really hard about and you were really excited. And the teacher says, uh, anyone else? <laughs> and then they pick a student who had the answer that was in the homework and just makes you look like an idiot for not knowing what the quote unquote right answer was. But a good teacher would start from where that student had their own interpretation of what was happening and respect it as such so that they could learn the skills of negotiating their understanding of the world with other people. And in that way, it becomes a more social experience. So I'm going to leave it there for now because there's so much more I can say as an educator, a lover of science and constructivism. And I feel like this episode will go on way too long. Even the last episode about constructivism in education was supposed to be a short. And I'm trying harder to make the short episodes short and the longer episodes longer. But I'm just so excited about these topics. And I'm looking forward to going even deeper in future episodes and talking to more people about their own interpretations. So again, thank you so much for listening to Nothing Is Real podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, I'd love to know about it. I'd love to know your thoughts. So please leave a comment or feedback on the Google form that's included in the show notes. And you can also choose to be a part of a future episode. If there's any topics that you're interested in or a topic that you want to propose, then let me know that as well. You can also always email mia.nothingisreal at gmail.com to give me any thoughts, comments, suggestions, and I'll be waiting to hear what you have to say. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode.